This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here with Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, remember this. Safe and effective, they said. Well, we looked at that and thought, huh, no medicine's actually 100% safe, really, is it? And this new one is guaranteed 100% safe. Not so sure about that. Then they brought in the mandates. Get the jab or lose your job. Get the Don't get the jab, second-class citizen. What a shocking, what a shocking thing that was. And then we started to hear. Oh, yes, no, there are some people injured, the government said. Yeah, yeah, no, it does happen. Very, very rare not to worry about. Oh, yes, there was a person that died, but, you know, um, not to worry. Overall, it was good. And then at the protest, I discovered there were lots of people injured. And they were totally denied an opportunity to tell their story. No one would come to talk to the injured. My little problems with the mandates and being shut out of things paled into insignificance with people that were injured by this medication. And the people that were injured, no one would listen to them. They went to Parliament. Not one member of Parliament would come down and say, how you're doing? Not one. I, I was filling in on that other radio station, the platform, and I wanted to use that opportunity to give the injured a platform and just an opportunity to speak and to tell their story without any judgment, because I'm not a doctor, I don't know, but just to talk human being to human being. I was never invited back, and that series of interviews of maybe a dozen injured disappeared, and I felt so bad about it because people gave of themselves to explain what was happening to the rest of New Zealand. But fortune's a wonderful thing. And here we are with Reality Check Radio, with Real Talk, and we're about to have some real talk over the coming weeks with the vaccine injured. And like I say, I'm not a doctor. I'm not an expert. But I do believe that everyone should have an opportunity to state their case, to say what's troubling them without being shut down. And so this morning, I welcome to our show, Patrick McCarthy. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning, Roddy. It's so lovely to have you on, and I apologise. I, For people that are listening, they won't appreciate that sometimes I have technical difficulties and I had to put Patrick through a bit of a hurdle because I was struggling. <laughs> but I got there and Patrick is very patient. <laughs> Tell me, Patrick, you were in the Army. Correct, yes. You were full-time in the Army? Yep. 
Yep, I, I was um, drum major of, of the New Zealand Army Band when I was um, forced to uh, receive the poison. So just I want to lead into all of that, but I'm interested. What's a drum major? Okay, so when you see a marching band, there's a person out front holding a stick. Uh, in our case, it's the tefa tefa, a chief's weapon that was used to um, direct the warriors into battle and so forth. Uh, and used for very similar um, um, things that, that a drum major uses a mace for in, in directing the marching band. And, and the mace, as a tefa tefa, uh, were both used uh, as weapons back, back in the day, obviously. Um, so, yeah, my role was pretty much, you know, if you've heard of the Edinburgh military tattoo, yes. um, I would be given a theme, I'd have to choose the music. Um, and then design a marching display, an eight to nine minute marching display to go with the music and then train up the troops and then we'd be off to the world stage and and um, and I, uh, to lead, you know, that the New Zealand Army Band's regarded as by the British probably the best marching band in the world. My God, uh, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, so uh, just... Uh, yeah, a little bit of pressure on the shoulders, really, to, um, yeah. you know. And so you're out front, just let yeah. me understand this, you've organised the music that each instrument is playing mm-hmm. and it's all got to add up and be in time and all the rest of it. Then you have to work out where they're walking or marching so they're all Not looking good in the time and they're smart in their uniforms. And then you actually have to do it live and you're sort of there, you're like playing a symphony, but everyone's marching. It's not just sitting down playing the violin. They're actually having to march. So there's a lot going on in everyone's heads to coordinate that, right? Exactly, yes, yes. That's extremely tough. That's sort of like um, riding a bike and chewing gum. It's... um. There's a lot going on. I had not appreciated that. And so you're a musician? Yes, yep. Because I always think the guy out front waving the baton can't do much. <laughs> well, <laughs> because if he could play an instrument, he would. But the guy waving, because I could wave a stick, right? Yeah. Um, I probably couldn't match. So you you play an instrument? Yeah, I've been playing. It's it's called the the euphonium, which is like it looks like a baby tuba, really. Um, and I started playing that as a ten year old, so about forty four years ago. But I've as a part of as my jab injury, I've had to give that up as well, just because the the, the lung capacity. I just don't have the lung capacity to to blow the instrument anymore. So, and why does a ten year old take up playing an instrument that I had previously never heard of? Well, my Father, um, post Second World War, he transferred um, from the engineers to the artillery, artillery, so he could join the the New Zealand Artillery Band, which was probably one of our premier marching bands at the time. Um, and I recall probably being three years old, going to a, a Christmas parade. Um, we were sort of pretty strict Irish Catholic type family, and I was number seven at the time and you know we sort of lined up like the the uh sound of music family taught us to short traps and and as they marched past mum just pointed out where dad was and I just took off and, and grabbed hold of his trouser pants his, his leg 
And uh, he just picked me up and carried on playing. And I was, yeah, I was smitten by that time. I, yeah, that's what I was going to do. How wonderful. But, yeah, and it was only because, you know, we were very busy at, at the time as a family. And, and um, when I was 10 years old, I, I ended up with ulcers on my lungs and I was going on, you know, all sorts of issues, health issues. And um, when I left hospital after three weeks, I recall the doctor saying to, to my father that you need to get this boy in, into something to build up his lung capacity that's not physical sport. And um, so, yeah, Dad grabbed about five of us kids and took us along to the local brass band in Hamilton there, and, and uh, it all began for me from, from that point. Good on you. And tell me, when you started playing, like you're 10 years old and you pick up this complicated piece of metal and start blowing it, making a sound, did you love it to begin with or was it hard work and you grew to love it? What were, And were you good at it start off? How did all that work? Because it seems a well, tough thing for a 10-year-old to learn to play the euphonium. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I just couldn't put it down. Really? Uh, yeah. I, I ended up having a, a tutor that put me right off and, and I wanted to give up when I was about 14. But then we moved to where we live now, here in Galatea. And we ended up going to the Fakatani Brass Band, which was now known as Eastern Bay of Plenty of Brass. And, yeah, they it's just one of those bands that just rekindled the flame for me. And I ended up, you know, rehearsing like three hours a day. I'd come in from the farm and spend an hour at breakfast playing, and I'd come home from the farm at lunchtime and spend another hour practicing, and then after work. My goodness. My yeah, God. I just want to put it down, really. And what was, uh, without getting into too much detail and accusing anyone of anything, what was the difficulty with the tutor that would put that enthusiasm in a young boy off? Well, it's just, and it probably wasn't so much him because he, he's he's um, he's tutored some of, of New Zealand's best young players. But it's just that, you know, not every tutor suits every student. And his, yeah. Yeah, and his, his style of teaching I just didn't, didn't work with me and yeah he just put me right off so isn't that amazing you wonder in life how many kids who had some talent because often with talent there are quirks and you can get a tutor that says it's my way or the highway and kids can be put off actually because they have a talent yeah yeah exactly how amazing and how did the army get into this picture well it's just you know like the New Zealand brass band um, scene, we, we have our national brass band championships every, you know, once a year. And um, and in about 1988 in Christchurch, they just had a little um, display at the brass band championships, you know, a, just a, a recruiting table. And um, I just sort of went up and put my name down. I, I don't actually remember doing it. And then a year later, I got this phone saying, oh, this, you know, so-and-so from the New Zealand Army Band. Oh, we've got a concert in Rotorua in a few weeks' time and uh, we see that your name's down for an audition. Would you still like to do it? No, it's just, yeah, sure, why not? So I went along, had an audition, got accepted. But at that time, they were shutting down. We, we had a band in Singapore, a New Zealand based in Singapore, as well as the band back here in New Zealand. So they were shutting down Singapore at the time, which meant, the New Zealand band would, would be double the size. So they said, yep, you're in, but you're just going to have to wait for a few years till uh, a position becomes available for you. And by the time that happened, I was just doing other things. I was, I was working in the forestry by then, so I um, sort of, nah, you know, I just carry on do, doing my life, thanks. 
And it wasn't until 2005 that, you know, I was just at a loose end and I thought, well, you know, life's moving on. Why not take up the chance to be a full-time uh, musician? Because if you think as far as brass band players, it, there's not a lot of scope in New Zealand for, you know, full-time employment and brass band type playing. And, and sorry, Patrick, you'd kept up the music playing all that time. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Every now and then I'll, I'll take a year or two off. Yeah. Spent about four years hitchhiking around the world at one stage. So as soon as I come back from that, I was yeah, straight back into the brass band scene. Um, yeah, but at the time, you know, I had full set of dreadlocks and whatnot, and I was, I was got accepted into Wollstone Brass Band, which was the best um, brass band in the country at the time. So yeah. I was moving to Christchurch, and I never had a job, and, and I was driving a tractor for a week, and I thinking, you know, what, what am I going to do when I get to Christchurch? And there's something just kept tapping in the back of my head, you know, the army band, the army band. I said, no way, I'd have to cut off my dreadlocks and, you know, do this and do And after a week of this, I thought, oh, God, I, I just, I sent off an email. It probably takes six months to get a response. By that time, I'll have a job down in Christchurch anyway. Um, but it turned out within three weeks, I was entering the gates of, of Burnham military camp and uh, one of the fastest recruits ever in, into the New Zealand army band. Goodness and um, and yeah, how old were you then, Patrick? Pardon? How old were you when you joined the I was, army? I was thirty-eight, I think I was thirty-eight. And yeah. your dad was still alive. Yep, he's still alive now. He's about ninety-three oh, wow. now. Yeah. So he would have been proud of you going into the army. Yes. Oh, very, very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The dreadlock boy that was hitchhiking around the world at a loose end. Yep. Got his hair cut and joined the army. Yep. Yeah, and it's quite funny because that you know when I was walking around the world in the loose end, loose end, I was across Canada. I didn't have a dime to my name. I had a, only a change of clothes wrapped up in a poncho and a, a didgeridoo slapped over my shoulder, and, and that was my life positions. And to think going from that to eighteen years later, leading the the, the best, you know, the world's best marching band out of the gates of the Edinburgh Castle. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's quite a what that a journey. Is really something. Yeah. That is yeah. really because how do you have a band and you're playing, you can play the euphonium, but they have to choose someone in the band to be the leader. Yeah. What are they looking for? Well, they're looking for, you know, like leadership skills, because it, it takes probably 10 years of, of being in the band before they um, before you even get a show at, at, at taking on a position like that. So throughout that time that they're always looking at, you know, from the privates, who has the ability to be a band master, so the conductor, or who can be a drum major, or who can be a recruiter. So we have all these roles. And um, over the years, that they're just keeping an eye out, you know, that sort of maturity, natural leadership, Um I guess the creative aspects that we might display that, you know, shows, oh, this person may be able to um, design a um, marching display or whatever. And um, as I was coming through the ranks, we never really had um, a system where we trained up our drum majors. Like I was said, right, the job's yours. My first time in front of the band with the Tefa Tefa was the dress rehearsal before going on uh, on a military parade. It's yeah, you know that that's quite a bit of pressure. So, in the years that, that I was drum major, we started doing these 
courses like intermediate and drum major course, junior, you know, and just every member who come into the band from that point um, went through an introduction to drum majoring. And even if that just plants a seed in them, oh, you know, that's quite a buzz. And you never really, as a band person, get to hear what the band sounds like when they're marching behind you, you see. So everyone in the band now gets the opportunity to march in front of the band and get a feel of the power it takes to control 36 uh, musicians that are secretly judging you on, on your performance. Yes. And, um, when you're, when you're um, leading a band and you're walking along, I imagine what you explained to me, it's very, very intense. Yes. Because you're listening to the music, the beat, you're conscious of what every player is doing, not just their music, but their marching. And I imagine that while you're there looking cool and accomplished, it's exhausting. Oh, yeah, like, like our lemon squeezes that we wear as hats, you know, and because I'm growing a bit of hair now, but I was, I was always bored after I shaved off, off my uh, dreadlocks. I said, if I can't grow my hair as I want to, I just won't grow any at all. So I always shaved my head. Um, but there's a tight seal around your head, and after eight-minute marching display, you take your lemon squeezer off, and the sweat just pours down because it's all being, you know, all that sweat wow. just been your head. So I, <laughs> I can imagine that because, you know, we just look at it and think, "Oh, that's cool," you know. But what it is, what is happening to make that happen, is truly astonishing. Now. The soldiers in the band, are they all coming into the army playing an instrument or could I go into the army as a young man and learn an instrument and go into the band or how does that work? So more or less it, it all comes, um, you know, civilians come along and they audition, then they come. The, I think it's the only unit in the army that's direct enlistment. So we don't go through um, basic training in Waiuri, okay. but we do an in-house basic training. And from that point on, we do all the other military courses that's required for, for promotionals and, and so forth. But there's no reason why any other soldier, or be it Army, Air Force or, or Navy, who are accomplished none, enough in the instrument of their choice to come along and audition and if they're good enough. And absolutely, and it's a lot easier because with, with that scenario, because they have that military and regimental background um, and, and know what's expected of them. And you're not playing an instrument just in the army for a bit of entertainment. You're joining a band that is potentially, and correct me if the potentially bit's wrong, is the best in the world. Yeah, yeah. But they, you know, it's that it's that good. Yeah, yeah. It's it's that, that good. Good. You know, like at, at the Edinburgh Tattoo now is a very nice gentleman by the name of Robert Pooley, and he makes swords. So, um, like most of the swords that, that our officers march around with, you know, are made by Pooley Swords. Now he every year gives donates a sword called, you know, the Sword of Honour, the Pooley Sword of Honour to the Edinburgh Tattoo uh, for the best act. And and that is chosen by the cast and crew. So you've got about 11 or 1,200 cast and crew 
um, at, at the tattoo every year, and everyone gets to vote. Um, now, the New Zealand Army Band has probably the only band, I believe, that's won it three times, and that's been under three different drum majors. So the one prior to me, <laughs> 2019, we won it, and last year that they won it again. And, and that shows that it's not just the drum major, but it's the quality of the band. And what do you put that down to? Um, <clears throat> I think the saint is uh, riding on the soldiers of giants. You, you know, the the band was formed in 1964, and it's that reputation that has started. You know, it's like we're just riding the crest of this wave that's been the army band for for, for many many years, and the current peers know that it's it's not us who are the world champions. It's you know we are just the face of, of, of this thing that's been like, rolling it's up. Like, it's like the All Blacks. Exactly. Just like yeah, that, you, know. you, you, you go into rugby wanting to be an All Black and being the best in the world, and that's the expectation, which sort yeah. of makes you the best in the world, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful um, insight, Patrick, because – I love that. I love that. I'm so impressed by that. I, I didn't know that. I'm amazed by it. Um, I'm astonished. And also that you will appreciate me saying this, I think, in the wider community, that pride and that discipline and that striving to be that good is becoming rare and you feel so sorry for so many young people that are given an expectation of failure and being not achieving like that. You yeah. Know what yeah. I mean? Yep. Yep. I just, I just, I hate it how we say, oh, you know, you're a victim and your poor thing. And oh, well, you know, rather than what I had growing up was, you know, pull your socks up and get into it and do your best and, and succeed. And, um, you rose, as a boy at least, um, you rose to be the best that you could be. It was a wonderful feeling. And, like, not everyone could win the Edinburgh Tattoo. Not everyone could get into the All Blacks or not everyone could get into the band. But you loved it and it made you a better person, trying. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and to see the best. Oh, man, that's a great story. I'm very, very sorry. And so... You're saying that the band is literally a separate unit in the army. Well, yeah, like, like there's obviously, um, I think, many, many units in the army, and the yeah. band is, is just one of those. And like originally, you learn, you learn to shoot a gun. Yeah, yeah, you do. You do your, your yearly. Um, they call it AWQ. So, so it's it's you have your target set at 300 meters. 200 metres and so forth. So, so we, we do go through and, and like by rights, if the strike hit the fan, then the band would have to take up arms as well. So your health and, and fitness are expected to be of the highest level as well. So, um, the, um, And, of course, historically, um, I'm thinking Napoleon, Napoleon Wars, and the War of Independence, we have these wonderful images, sometimes created by Hollywood, but 
oftentimes when you read a historical account true of bands playing and little drummers boys beating the drum and literally inspiring men you know yep. inspiring them to do the impossible yeah i yep. mean guys on the western front standing up and walking along playing the jolly bagpipes yeah it's yep. something and then, else and i yeah, think that yeah 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 and and that coolness under fire and then to hear that music um and you were a part of that tradition. Oh, my goodness, that's so wonderful, Patrick. So you're in the army. You're in the band. Um, what happened? Well, at the time, I guess when um, Cave would come to our shores, um, the chief of army um, just Got us. It was called the Heartland Tour. He, he wanted us to, to get out amongst, you know, all, all the backcountry places and, and just cheer people up because, you know, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty and, and, and so forth around. So when a lot of the, the rest of the NZDF were starting to go into the managed isolation hotels, that the man was still on the road. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, just, you know, lifting spirits. You know, that, that's that's what our job is. Um, myself. My role as a staff sergeant, being the drum major, I did a couple of um, stints in the, it's called the CRIP, the Canterbury Regional Isolation Quarantine Headquarters. And my role was, and there was um, the security liaison officer. So if you think back then, there's about seven different security outfits working in those hotels. And I, I guess my job pretty much was just making sure we're all holding hands, singing Kumbaya, you know, get, getting along. Um, and just recording all incident, incidences that, that, that come from the hotels. So my first month was October 2020, and my second month was over, well, Christmas, New Year's through January 2020 into 2021. And one of the things I did note, um, you know, it had this big thing, you know, the, the big fear push of what was coming to our shores and, and, and so forth. And most of the positive cases were coming through isolation hotels. And so what I did in January 2021 is I went through and I calculated exactly how many in our region had come in with, with COVID or got COVID in our hotels. And there's about 240, I think. And then I went through and calculated how many ended up being hospitalised. And I think there's only seven or so that, that ended up getting taken to hospital. And even back then, I was wondering, you know, what's this about? You know, if it's if it's such a, a violent, fearful, disgusting disease, and yet only seven out of 240 have, have made a visit to hospital. And most of those cases that were positive still left the hotels pretty much on time. So I was a bit wary about you know, what was going on. Um, by that time, we'd started to hear... Just excuse me, excuse me, Patrick. So there's this big fear factor going through. We all remember it. Well, it's almost like a repressed memory. But did you discuss that, not with your seniors or anything, but just with your mates in the Army? Um, for yourself? No, there's very few that you could 
speak to, because, you know, because then you were. I, I, see, I, I think a very, very smart thing, quite evil, I think, but very smart, was these precept boxes that, that the government had set up, the conspiracy theorists, the dis- disinformation box, the, the misinformation box. So as soon as you started speaking about something, People just went, oh, you're one of those. Oh, you know, so they, they pre-labeled us, really. Yes. Or pre-labeled these boxes. So it's rather than people thinking or, you know, critical thinking about what might be going on, it's easier just to say, oh, you're conspiracy theorists or that's misinformation or, or whatever. It was extremely clever, wasn't it? Oh, I, th- I think so, yeah. It's, you know, I've seen a you, lot of you. Use- you noticed that in Canterbury, 240 got COVID coming through isolation. I think you said, was it seven went to hospital? About that, yeah. Single numbers, yeah. And, and you were thinking, hmm, that doesn't um, sound all that bad. But like everyone else, you're reluctant to give voice to your thoughts or your concerns because you had a job to do and you're in an official capacity representing the army in order to achieve a result that the government had set, you couldn't give voice to that. It was like questioning an order almost. So you kept it to yourself. Then what happened? So not long after that, um, the vaccines showed up to our shores. And at that time, it was still voluntary if if you wanted to, to receive it or not. And a directive came out from the Chief of Army saying to us as commanders that we were not to coerce, bully, threaten or reinterpret the vaccine. If anybody wanted it, they could have it. If they didn't want it, then um, they didn't have to have it. Now, being a realist and being, you know, part of the band that travels internationally, I figured that the day would come when we'd have to take it. Um, but I just wanted to sit back at the time and observe, you know, the there was no cases in Canterbury at the time. There's none in the South Island at the time. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I didn't see the need or feel the need to run out and, and get one just because it was available. Um, there's obviously a lot of pressure for units wanting to show, you know, oh, we've done the good thing, we're compliant, we've got all our peers vaccinated. And, and so there was pressure coming on to us to go get it. And um, this is... Oh, maybe five of us in our unit that just held our ground and said, no, no, it's voluntary. We don't need to take it. We're just, you know, hold five. However, not long after that, the Chief of Defence um, mandated, well, was probably told to mandate the vaccine for, for us. So I had a strong intuition not to take it. Um, and I might say that, you know, before I talked about um backpacking around the world for four years or hitchhiking around the world. Um, that was more of a midlife crisis. I was trying to find out, you know, where do I fit in the whole scheme of things? You know, I'd, I'd had a brand new house in, in Nelson, a beautiful partner. We had all this, you know, wonderful materialism. And it put me in a spin. I thought, well, as a 27-year-old, is this the menu of life, you know, accumulation of, of all this beautiful um, materialism type thing. And, and as a realist, I also knew it, it was all owned by financial companies anyway. So if anything, you know, if the shit hit the fan, we'd lose it all. And, you know, so what's it all about? And I had this conversation with this God who I didn't know where, how, or, you know, exists. I just said, look, either show me a reason for being here or, you know, 
I'd, I'd rather check out. You know, I wasn't suicidal. Although I probably was depressed, but that was the 90s, and there's no such thing as depression in the 90s, like you said before. You know, you just get on with it and, and did things. Um, and I was quite lucky not to think about that. Otherwise, I probably would have just put on medication to, you know, numb my, my emotions. Um, but, yeah, for the next 12 months, I lost everything. Um, we moved back to Whakatane. We lost our house. Our sorry, I'm just trying to get, get the sequence right. I'm sorry, Patrick. You hitchhiked around for four years. Yep. This was – so this before was, you this hitchhiked – This was leading up to the hitchhiking. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So you're in Nelson. Yep. You had a wonderful partner. You had all these material possessions. Yep. You didn't feel happy and you wondered what it was all about. Yep. And then you lost everything. That was a bit I, I – you jumped me on. Yeah, yeah. So so I'd ask this question of, of this God that I didn't know, show yeah. me a reason for Christine or get me out of here, and everything started falling apart. And I knew this was a direct – result of asking that question. Wow. Wow. And um, so, so I just didn't fight it. I just I just let it all fall apart. A year later, I had $10,000 to my name, and that was it. And I thought, well, I can either re- get really depressed about this, and I'm at the bottom of the barrel with, you know, nothing pretty much, or I can say life's my oyster. You know, I can do whatever I want, go wherever I want, do whatever it is that I've always wanted to do, and I've, I'd always wanted to travel. And so. Yeah, I just got a backpack and change of clothes and, and, and off I went. And as I was traveling, a couple of things I started realizing it's about people, you know, like because when you hitchhike everywhere, you get in a car, people just tell you their life stories to this complete stranger. And because I'd been processing so much of my life, I sort of come to realize that there's not actually a lot of issues in the world, you know, that there might only be a handful of issues, but everything sort of expands from that yes. you know it's almost without getting religious you know if everyone lived by the ten commandments you know they'd probably be a lot happier would they what um, yeah. so when people started telling me about their issues if i could relate it to my life stories i'd tell them about you know what's going on in my life and how i got through it and you know one person took me two hours out of his way because we're having such in-depth conversations and and um Yes, so I found this love for people that that I never realised I I had. But also I come to, you know, because I I guess it was a a spiritual or a religious journey that I was on, you know, why why are we here type thing. And when I said about walking across uh, Canada with, with just a change of clothes and no money, I was exploring the concept of this life a living entity that, you know, because my life had looked after me up to the step that I was taking at them at that point in time. So why fear the next step? So it didn't matter what situation I found myself in, I just keep pushing on. And I ended up also walking pretty much every outback highway in Australia. Now, I'd only ever carry 1.5 litres of water and maybe a loaf of bread. Um now, it's important to note when you're doing something like that, you've got to get through so many different barriers. Like I'd have 23 blisters on my feet, so you had to push through a pain barrier. And once you got through that pain barrier, you just didn't stop because you knew if you stopped and sat down, you'd have to spend 10 minutes walking through, you know, those blisters again. You'd have 30 flies on your face, always crawling around, getting up your nose and up your eyes. So you had to get through annoyance barriers. You had 35 degrees heat. 
you had to get through that barrier. You had to get through the well, you had to be aware of your emotions because in the outbacks, the thing that'll kill you most is your state of mind. If if, if you if you drop the ball mentally, then your emotions get all out of whack. And that's that's what kills people that you know they freak themselves to death. So you're always scanning your body for for pains, like if you had a, a if you discovered you you had a limp, you had to find out why. You had to make sure that you weren't going to overcompensate to cause issues at other, you know, in other parts of your body. You had to be aware exactly of your emotional state. Are you starting to get into a fearful place or and and, and I guess you become your consciousness because you're scanning every everything else. But you realize that the the strongest part of yourself needs to be your faith. Because you know, at one stage I walked into the desert without food or water. It took me two days to, to come across water and I was eating flies off my face. I put a bit of spittle on the corner of my mouth and flies would come to eat it and I'll just suck them in and, and, and you know that's what I'd, I'd eat. Um, so why I say that is when it came time to vaccine time, um, all that stuff walking through the outbacks, you're relying on your intuition. You know, what's the negative thing saying to you're not going that way, you go this way. So and and so forth, and I actually said to my, I guess uh, my perception of what God is. I said, look, I hear what you're saying, but there are reasons why I need to take this vaccine. And because at the time the army band had about four international trips lined up on the books, um, only one of them happened because of COVID. But to hand over the role of drum major to somebody who's never done it before, these massive international um, expectations coming up just because I'm too scared to, you know, take a jab. Um, that was probably the main push for, for me to say no. Um, I, I just feel like I was letting down the unit and my friends and my family if, if, if I were to, you know, not take the jab. Um, and, so, yeah. If you would taken the jab, would you have lost your job as well? Yes. Yeah. So the – your two things of that story. One is you have developed an extraordinary and successful intuition and sense of your body. Mm-hmm. Second thing is you've developed an extraordinary mental toughness to back yourself. Yeah. Yeah, your story is extraordinary, and I guess too you have developed a spiritual side, a belief. Yeah, yeah. And is that a Christian God or something else? Well, like I was brought up pretty staunch Catholic. Like I probably miss you could probably count the number of times I missed church on your hands in the, my first eighteen years. And then I just gave it all up because nobody could explain to me who, what, or why God was. Yes. And it was 10 years after that date when I turned back and said, okay, yeah, I know you're out there somewhere, but, you know, what's it all about? So those next years, four years were, were me trying to find my understanding of, of what that is. And I guess religious would probably call me an atheist. Atheists would probably call me religious, spiritual, probably call me spiritual because, you know, I, I think I'm all three. Um, you know, when, when 
So my concept of God is, you know, if you think of omnipresent and omnipotent, there's only one thing that's omnipresent and omnipotent, and that's frequency, that's vibration, you know, right down to, to our single cell, inside our single cells, you yeah. know, you, you've got vibration. Our thoughts are vibration, our emotions are vibration. So the distance between you and I are full of vibration. Um, everything, it, it can't exist without. Um, good and evil is vibration. Heaven and hell, it's all vibration. So it's 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 coming. And an ongoing thing is is understanding that connection yes. um, through frequency. Yeah, you know, and, and I quite often talk about the analogy about um, radio stations. You know, it's about tuning into a yes. frequency. You know, and if you want heavy metal, you tune into that frequency. If you want classical, you tune into that frequency. So. If, if you want a life of love, then that's a frequency you, you've got to tune into and, and look for love in, in all things. Um, so, so, yeah, to me, my concept of God's not, not a, a bearded man. It, it's frequency. And it's, it's what, no, no. Well, it's a funny thing, isn't it, because I think about it in terms of physics like you and almost the internet, parallel universes, and how little we actually know. And um, maybe 2,000 years ago, it was a bearded man up in the sky. But now we can have a more finely tuned or a concept of something, you know, yeah. or a parallel universe or a glitch in the matrix or something. So tell me, Patrick, your intuition was not to take it. Mm-hmm. You were prepared to lose your job but you didn't want to let down the band or yourself and the opportunity of leading the best band in the world. Yeah. That's understandable. And and so against all intuition, you took the vaccine. Yeah. So tell me. Funny enough, you know, like, um, when you're in the army, it gets done through your medical centres within your camp that you're in. And so every day emails would come out. So I, I booked my my date for 12th of May for whatever reason that that was the day I was going to do it. And I was overloading on vitamin C's and zincs and, you know, preparing my, my body for it. But every day we get emails saying, oh, there's X amount of, of vaccines available for today because, you know, people haven't shown up for their um, appointments. And one of the other... Um, guys in the band who was holding out would say to me, oh, did you see the email? Are you going down today? I said, no, no, I'm not. I said, I'm booked in for the 12th. I said, this this body's preparing for battle. Um, little did I know at that stage what sort of battle I was preparing for, but, you know, that was what was coming out, out of my mouth. Um, so come 12th of May, went down. Um, a part of the process was we did it was compulsory to go for a brief now the brief was you know by a corporal who was just reading off a song sheet really you know and and had no idea what he's talking about you know so oh yeah uh, the reason why it's come out so fast is the amount of money thrown at it um the adverse reactions will be soreness at injection site and and maybe cold and flu symptoms for a couple of days so yeah you know the exactly what Jacinda Durham said um when she got hers you know the, the same song sheet but when I asked them at Christian time, do you think this is going to be a yearly thing to receive this? And he said, oh, we don't know. And I thought, well, if you don't know that, how do you know 
the, the, the safety and efficacy of it, you know. Um, but like I say, he's only – these are questions he wouldn't be able to answer, so I wasn't going to be the big grumpy uh, staff sergeant putting him on the spot. Um, so, yeah, rolled up the sleeve, got the jab, started going downhill the next day, feeling, you know, fluey and heavy. Now, there's a few members in the band who said that they were like that for 10 to 14 days. And I thought, oh, yeah, i just got to ride out 10 to 14 days. should be sweet. Um, in the second week, I definitely wasn't getting any better. So I had to, you know, ring up uh, the health centre. And if you're sick, you ring up the health centre. You'd normally go in and see them. But at that time, because of COVID, they weren't seen um, face-to-face unless it was, you know, very serious. Um so you tell them your symptoms, they send you off to Christchurch for a PCR test and say, you know, just stay off work until you get a positive test and, and come back. And I had to do that again the following week. The week after that, we went down, uh, my wife and I, to Dunedin. She was in a piping contest down there. And I was pushing a little toddler up and down those Dunedin hills all weekend in a pram. And then we drove down to our friend's place and the cargo and that drive so it's early June now my legs just turned to ice but below my knees like freezing freezing cold and I had the, the heater blown on them you know full strength in the car all the way down to, to in the cargo um that night I had to sleep in the fetal position just cuddling my, my legs because I was so agonizingly cold I had to put you know um, hot water bottles around them and, and everything and I'm the type of guy who sleeps with his feet out from underneath the quilts because I get really hot feet you see um, then the next day, I woke up with a sensation in my right lung. And if you put your, the tips of your fingers together, it felt about that big, and I can still pinpoint the exact area, and it felt like an ice cube inside my lung. And it was quite itchy, and you just couldn't get into it. But that sensation stayed with me from second week of June through to end of October. Just didn't go away ever. It was always, always there. Um, every time I saw a medical professional, I'd tell them about it, but, you know, they just shrugged their shoulders. Um, so, you know, I, I carried on. The following week, I had to ring up again for, for more sick leave. And I'd been booked in for the second um, jab. But the good thing about NZDF is if you had any respiratory issues going on, they, they wouldn't give you any more. Um, so I rang up, had it postponed. The next week, I postponed it again. The third week, I rang up. And they said, well, this is the third time. They said, what's going on? I said, I've been crook ever since, you know, receiving the jab. But it, it didn't raise any flags, you know, and, and that was one of the letdowns, I think, in the system. And I guess because they all thought it was so um, safe and effective that when you ring up two weeks after receiving the jab, they didn't say, oh, so when did you get the jab? When you ring up, you know, two weeks after that again, they're not connecting the dots. And even when I said to them that I've been crooked for this amount of time, they didn't, you know, they just said, oh, I'll just go get a PCR test and, and just fobbed it off. Um, just, just to be clear, uh, I'm talking to Patrick McCarthy. He was the, I'm going to get the phrase right, drum major. That's the one. Zealand Army Band, best in the world. Um, your symptoms came on the day after that first jab. Yeah, yeah. Well, the proximity of that suggests a causality, right? I mean, we're not, you and I aren't doctors, but we know we're not stupid. Yeah. Sailing along up to that point, 
a healthy fellow in the army. Yep. And, and I'd say that in 2019, in a competition that the uh, the gym in Burnham ran, I, I ran a, a half marathon every day for a month. So that, so that was my fitness level. Gee whiz. Yeah. That's 21 kilometres every morning, every day. Every day, yep. And thrown yeah. in like the Buller Half Marathon and amongst it, you know, halfway through. And you're not a you're you're a tough guy, obviously, for what you've been through. You're not a guy who what you've I mean, what I'm trying to establish here in my own head, and I'm sorry, I'm not at all skeptical of your story, but you're an amazing human being because you and walking across Australia and hitchhiking around the world have a toughness and resilience that very few people could match. And you are also a person who is disgustingly healthy and fit because there wouldn't be many people that could run a half marathon every day for a month. Then, so it's not like, A, you're sickly and unhealthy, and B, it's not like you're a whinger and a whiner who gets a sniffle and takes a month off work because you're not feeling well. No, no. So this all adds up to a picture of um, not just average health, but extremely good health, extreme resilience, extreme ability to push through, get the jab, next day, ill in a way it's peculiar, and you stay that way. You don't recover. In fact, it gets worse from what you're describing. Gets worse, yes. Very much so. Yeah. And no one's no one's in a position to say, well, hang on. In the army, we tracked these guys. He was perfectly healthy, took the jab, and now he's sick. It didn't set off any flags. No. That in itself is a, what an extraordinary story. I mean, it's extraordinary your life before this, but that story of that jab is so shocking to me, Patrick. Mm-hmm. Carry yep. on. So, this is June. July. You're in Dunedin. You went to Invercargill. Yep. And, 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 and can't do the second jab. I'd say life used to have a spring in the step, and all of a sudden. You feel like you're wearing gumboots walking through um, ankle deep mud. You know that you feel like you're dragging yourself through, through life now. But come July, I, I played in the national brass band championships, and then the Monday after that, I rung up um, our medical centre again in Burnham, and they started saying, "Oh, I'll take a few days off work and, and go get a PCR test." I said, "No." I said, "This has been going on since the twelfth of May since I got the jab." I said, I'm ringing because I, w- I want a, an adverse reaction lodged. And they're like, oh, right. So within a, an hour, I was in front of the doctor. Now, he prescribed me as having pneumonia so severe that most people would be in hospital by that stage. He said, as it is, you're, you're about three or four days away from being hospitalised. And um, he, he had a student doctor with him from Otago University at the time, and he pointed out that, this is an extremely healthy and fit, fit person. You know, he's got 15 years records of, of um, my fitness tests and, and my health records. And um, so he, he was quite concerned. Um, he got me on some heavy-duty um, antibiotics. And even though I was 
I was surprised at that diagnosis just because I, I, I had a very dry chest. You know, it's not like I was never phlegmy, or, you know, what, whatever I, I would have thought pneumonia looked like or felt like, I would never have thought I had pneumonia. But I was just happy for a diagnosis. And I thought, right, eh? that's in my mind. People get better from uh, pneumonia. I just start focusing on um, getting better from here on. So when people were saying, how are you feeling? I'd tell them the truth, truthful answer. Um, now I feel like crap, you know, and this, this, this. And so somebody would say, you know, the next day said, oh, I'll say, how are you feeling? I said, I'm changing my mental approach. I'm feeling brilliant, just brilliant, you know, and, and, and from now on I'm just going to be brilliant. But two days later you just laid flat out. And my wife was getting quite fresh, frustrated because, you know, the whole way is, is just ebbs and flows, this, this um, whatever's going on. And um, so, yeah, I'd be saying to my wife, yeah, I'm feeling good. I'm, I think I'm coming right. Two days later I'm just lying on the couch. I, you know, I just can't move. Um, towards the end of August, I got sent in for a chest X-ray, and there's no sign of any pneumonia um, stuff on my lungs. So I yeah, thought we must be getting better. Um, we had a fitness test coming up at the end of um, September, so I thought, well, I better start get out and get running again. Um, around camp, it's like a four four k loop, and we're living in, in housing at camp at the time. So I just went out and did a very, very slow run around camp, just, you know, get the legs warmed up again. That seemed to work. And my doctor rang me the next day. We're, we're in another lockdown by now, so we couldn't have face-to-face. And he said, oh, so how's your, how, how's your health? How are you going? I said, yeah, good, good, good. I, I said, you know, I went out for a run the other day and it, it felt all right. It wasn't very fast, but it felt all right. And he said, you're puffing a lot. What's going on? I said, well, I'm walking and talking. I can't really do that anymore. And he said, Patrick, you know, that's not you. And you know, he said, I, I want to organize a CT scan at some stage. I said, yeah, right. So the next, I think it was the next Monday, I went for another small run and three Ks into four Ks, I just hit the wall. And, you know, I, I just don't know what the hell happened. But I always said that because I, I was – for quite a number of years, I was in charge of the fitness of, of the band. And I used to say to them, when you're out running, never walk. Because once you walk once, that's it, you're buggered. You know, you, you just lose that momentum. So if, even if you're scuffing along, just keep that forward momentum going. And so I, I, I couldn't go back on that. So I, I carried on running till I got home. But my breathing was like, <clears throat> by the time I got home and, and my wife just freaked out and she got a, 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 an asthma inhaler that she has. And gave me a few puffs on that and uh, sort of settled my breathing down. But from that point on, I couldn't go outside if it was cold because my, my lungs were just burning. Um, I was getting very tired. I was having to have Nana sleep every day. Um, every day we'd take our, our, our baby out for a walk in the morning and evenings, and, and I just couldn't go. I just had to stay at home. So I rang the doctor again. I said, no, um, something's going on, and it's getting worse by the day. Now, this was a Monday. My doctor was on leave that week, so I, I had to go into camp and, and see a, a different doctor. And this doctor just thought I was an anti-vax because he knew that I hadn't um, – initially, I, I hadn't taken the jab when it was still voluntary, so he figured I, I was an anti-vaxxer. Um, but he put me on four days' worth of steroids to see if it you know, settled my lungs down. Now, on the – Wednesday night, I went to bed and I had the sensation in my right lung that went up over my shoulder and behind my, my right ear. 
And because I, I think I've got quite a high tolerance for pain and I was trying to work out, is, is this pain or not? And I was like, no, most people would decide that, that this is pain. And, and I, I didn't tell my wife because she was going to get up and, and go to work the next day. She was doing a bit of shift work. And um, so by the time I woke up in the morning, uh, my wife had gone to work and my whole right side of the mod- body had gone tingly and, and numb. And I was, I was well, I thought it, it can't be a stroke because, you know, they say about, you know, one side of the head as at the side of the body is, is what a stroke symptoms are like. So I don't worry too much about it. I looked in the mirror to see if I was drooping. And if I used my imagination enough, I said, yeah, it looks like the side of my face is, is drooping. Now, one of the guys at work was going to drop his dog off um, for, for the day. We've both got box of dogs, brother and sisters, you see. And he showed up to drop his dog off at 10 to 8. Now, he was going to come back that afternoon when I had my doctor's appointment to, to look after the baby. But he took like, one look at me and said, what the hell is going on with you? I said, I don't know. I said, I think I might be having a stroke. And it's like, chat. I said, well, what are you going to do about it? I said, oh, I'll just... Once eight o'clock comes around, I'll, I'll ring up the medical centre and see if they can see me um, in, in, as soon as they can. You know, you, you don't even think about calling an ambulance because, you know, I've never been in an ambulance in my life type thing. Um, so eight o'clock came. They said, yep, we can see you at, at, at nine o'clock. Um, my mate went to work and told another one of our mates, oh, Patrick thinks he's having a stroke. And our other mate says, well, what the bloody hell are you doing here? Shouldn't you be around? And said, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he, he came back and, and I dumped in my vehicle and drove into camp. And by the time I got out of my vehicle, my whole right side of my body, I, I was just limping. And um, I got into the office and the doctor said, so what can I do for you? I said, well, you can start it off by, t- by telling me I'm not having a stroke. He said, chat. So he got me on the table and started doing tests, and he rang up the ambulance. So I was rushed to hospital and, and the lights and sirens, and they said, you've had a stroke. But they said, it obviously wasn't this morning. They can't pin um, exactly when, when it was. But they said, not only that, you've had two strokes. And um, so, yeah, but they just couldn't pinpoint when either of these strokes were. Um, now, I believe that one of them was probably when I was on that run because, yeah. like I said, I, got, I, can, I could take you down and, and pinpoint exactly where I was on that run when something happened. Um, in the months that have followed, now the doctors believe the first stroke probably would have been in Dunedin when I, all that stuff happened with my legs. And funnily enough, both of those um, times, there's quite a bit of exercise going on, I suppose. Now, what is a stroke, Patrick? Well, that's so mine they call the TIA, so it's a trans- transitional one. So it's the clot passing through through the brain. Okay. And it's it's when it gets clogged in the brain, I think that's when, you know, everything droops and you get that limpy stuff going on. But these ones were, I guess, small enough to pass through, but they've left signs on your brain that, that um, you, you've had a stroke. And, and, and on in two different areas, say front right, right and, and back left. And of course, that's a well-known adverse effect. Yeah, yeah, strokes and heart attacks. Yep. So you must have been appalled. Yeah. Um, see, the weird thing is because you, you've been through so much, like every day, you know, you, your body's just pulling you down. 
when they say this is what it is, you're happy, even though it's something crappy. You know, like even my doctors now think I have pericarditis, which nobody wants pericarditis, but I would be quite happy because they could say this is what we're dealing with, you know. But honest doctors will tell you they don't know what they're looking at. I've got three doctors here, and they will say we don't know what we're looking at. And, and this is part of the criminal thing is you're mandating a substance onto a populace of people when doctors don't know how to deal with it when it goes wrong. You know, um, how how is that right? How is that not evil? Um, and your disease slash illness slash whatever is not like anything anyone's ever heard of. And nothing I've ever experienced. The, the, the type of pain that we go through, like, I mean, I live in constant pain now. Um, you know, even talking to you, I, I get breathy. Um, but the sensations are, are nothing I've ever experienced before. You know, they, they just travel around the, the body. It might be in your legs for three minutes and then it's in your shoulder or, or then it's in the side of your, your, your rib cage or, you know, these sensations but, that are just constantly moving around your body. It must be so hard, Patrick, because I come on a Zoom call and say to you, how are you feeling? <laughs> you do. <laughs> That's not easy for you to answer. <laughs> because you're sort of thinking, A, do you really want to know? Um, and B, how long have you got? Yeah. Because already it's a long story with a lot going on. It's not like, as you can say, oh, yeah, no, all right, I had a heart attack, but I'm getting over it. This is such a level of symptoms. Yeah. And you also don't want to be that person where everyone's saying, oh, don't ask McCarthy how he's going because, it, you know, that's you for the next half hour because he'll tell you. So keep going. You've got this diagnosis of having had two strokes, and what yep. month and year was that? So that was 23rd September 2021. So now, September 21, and you'd had the jab on the May 12th, 21. Yep. So, and I'd, I'd only just put in, like, I, I'd had enough. So I was getting out of the army because I, I just knew I couldn't take any more jabs. Um, I knew that it would be just a messy fight to try and stay in. And I'm not the guy who's won some messy fights. You know, I'm just quite happy to move on and go do something else. Um, so my wife and I bought a house bus and we're just going to travel the, the, the country and, and do fruit picking or labouring work or a bit of farming here and there and, you know, take our baby, you know, around the country. But there's well, – by the time it came around to it, there's no way I could do that sort of stuff. Um, but, yeah, so anyway, I, I went back to my doctor and he put out this big list of things, tests that is going to um, put me through. And I said, look, you're looking at the stuff you do know. I said, I'm saying this came from the jab, and so this is the stuff you don't know. I said, I'm not going to be a pin christian. I'm, I'm not going to be a test tube dummy. I'm not interested in all these tests if you're not going to take this seriously. And if you don't take it seriously, then I'll just go find myself a doctor who who, who would be willing to, not knowing that how hard that would have been back then as well. And my doctor, to his credit, said, come see me next week. And so when I arrived next week, he said, excuse my language, fuck me about four or five times. He said, I had no idea this was going on. He said he went to um, 
data that came out of Cambridge University in, in the UK, which is one of the top three medical universities in the world, I believe. And all his information came off the British Medical Journal. And all it was was data. It wasn't pro-jab. It wasn't anti-jab. They just stand purely off the data. And he said, to be honest, I, I didn't believe this was from the jab. But now everything you have told me is carbon copy of what's happening to tens of thousands of people in the UK. Um, and so now he was on board with it and he started taking it seriously. Incidentally, he has now um, been kicked out of the defence for, I guess, acknowledging jab injuries. I think May no. next month is, is his last month. He was no. he was ordered not to talk to me even after I left the army. No. And, and he was ordered that he was off my case and is to have nothing to do more with, with my case. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. And, and and this isn't this isn't army, this is the medical um part of the army, you know. Like I oh, I, feel, I feel that I was so blessed to have been in the army when this happened to me because of the way that I was looked after until um, March last year when the neurologist report pretty much said that I was no good for the army anymore and so I should be getting a, a medical payout. And that's when things turned really sour with, with me and the medical arm of, of, of the army. Just, I'm just letting that, I just can't, that just can't sink in. Mm. And, and we're talking walk, about walk me, walk me through. Just I got to do that again, Pat. I'm very, very sorry to do this to you, but to me, it's just up till now, it's been shockingly evil, right? Mm -hmm. But this last bit, where you've been going on for some months, getting worse and worse, the doctor wants to do traditional sort of jabs and probes and all the rest of it. He's an army doctor. He's known your records for 15 years, knows how fit you are. Mm -hmm. He said, come back in a week. You go back in a week. He says, fuck me four times and says, I had no idea. I was looking at the data. I pulled it out of Cambridge University, I think you said, medical university. Yep. Tens of thousands of people are suffering like you. Mm -hmm. And tell me then what happened to him. So he he got me an appointment with a neurologist, and this neurologist in Christchurch said an offence has been committed against this body, and I will find the perpetrator. So I went for an MRI on on my brain, which confirmed the two strokes. CT scan on my lungs that didn't show any anything, and then I had a echo bubble a, a bubble echocardiogram done in December, and that showed a sizable hole in my heart. Um, now, they say that so everyone's born with a hole in the heart. They say most people's close up, and we're talking pin, pinprick size, most people's close up in that first week after birth, but one in four live life through, um, live their lives with, with a hole in the heart. Now, obviously, if I've had mine all my life, it's never been an issue. I've always been farming, forestry worker, always played rugby, you know, all that stuff that I've told you about. Um, so a few were, were yahooing that, oh, it must be all this has come from a hole in the heart. And I'm like, well, no. You know, look at my history for a start, and I know damn well that this all started on the 12th of May. You know, you, you can't you can't tell me that it's all so 
you know, coincidental. So anyway, that the doctor on hand, she said, well, you need a heart operation. You need to plug that hole. Um, at this time, my last day in the Army was supposed to be the end of November because when you put in to leave, it's, it's a three-month um, notice. But the Army can't also release you if you've got medical issues going on. So when they realised after the strokes, they said, okay, we can't let you go. Um, would you be happy to do a six-month extension? And I said, yes, but I need to get out of here because I felt being in that environment was been quite unhealthy um, to me psychologically, I, I guess, mentally. And to come back to Galatea where we're surrounded by family, you know, just for that family support, um, they said, look, um, my doctor said we just do – once a week or once a fortnight, we do phone call um, um, consult consultations, um, and I'm just happy for you for you to move back. My commander within the band said, "Look, yep, we're happy for for you to move back and just you know be in touch." So we did that. We moved back to Galatea in March. I had to go back down for a neurologist appointment, and and this guy was really good. This was a different one um, to my original one. And he went through absolutely everything. Um, and at the end of it, I asked, okay, so that's everything, you know. This is an hour 20 later. I said, what, what's your diagnosis? And he said, um, you display all the symptoms of long COVID, but I can't call it that. I said, right. So, you know, what, what's, what's, the, what's the fix? You know, long you from COVID. Here? Long COVID. It, that's what he said it resembled. I said, you know, what's the fix with you from here? And he said, there is no fix. He said, this this is it for life. He said, you you need that heart operation. He said, it's not going to fix you, but it will um, prevent further strokes. Because if because my D dimers were showing uh, elevated clotted blood levels, you know, um, every time I had a D dimer done, they showed I was clotting. So if you've got clots going through that hole, then it's just going straight to your brain. So it's like you need to get that fixed. Now, unfortunately, um, I moved all my um, DHB stuff back here to the Waikato Bay of Plenty. So now that I don't come under that army umbrella, I come under Budapada, who, you know, obviously have um, yeah, been through the walls over their stance on, on COVID and vaccines and, and stuff. So I get treated a lot, lot different. Um, now to what I was when I was in the army, but going back to my doctor, I saw him when I was back there, um, and even then he had a wad of papers that he just pulled out of Australia on pericarditis because he said he's never seen so much pericarditis in his life. He said as a GP you, you might only see one in your life as as a practitioner, but the amount he had seen coming through Burnham alone, um, and it might have been four or five or, or, or something like that. I can't quite remember. But he said, oh, it's just, you know, this is just not right. Um, so, again, he's recognising pericarditis, which is another well-known, you know, myocarditis and pericarditis side effects of, of the jab. Um, so on the back of the neurologist report, who his official line wasn't long COVID. It was a conformed to something in the, in the way of chronic fatigue syndrome. And he also stated that he didn't believe I would be able to continue um, my role in the army as a player or, or a drum major. So my doctor said, "This is 
brilliant news because we should be able to get your medical payout within three weeks. And that lasts for about, I think you might get 80% of your income for the next two years. Um, so he um, submitted this medical discharge, but it got to the chief medical officer. Now, at this stage, the courts have just overturned their NCDF mandates. So now you don't need them anymore, you know, let them go. All those who were about to, you know, so if I wasn't leaving already, that's when they would have kicked me out. Um, but then the courts turned just around. Stopping but you there, Patrick. Um, if you want, we can have a rest and carry on, or are you okay? I don't want to wear you out. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm fine. Yeah. Okay. Carry on. Um, yeah, so this medical chief medical officer said, I need more information. Why isn't this person been going through a process to get him back into work? Now, I was sent to a physiotherapist, but when I told that physiotherapist what was going on, she said, well, I'm not touching this body because I don't know what's going on in there. And if I start massaging clots or, or whatever's going on, she said, no, I'm not prepared to um, to get involved. Um, so, yeah, uh, but then the medical officer didn't deny the claim. He just put it to bed, he, you know, just, just let it go to rest. And because and I was back in the bad plenty by this point. And every now and then I'd send off an email, you know, what's going on here? And, and there'd be a flurry of emails go around the place and then it'll all go quiet again. Now, come September, there's a group taking NGDF back to court because on the back of, I believe, this chief medical officer's um, report saying no, nobody in NCDF has been injured by the vaccine, therefore NCDF should be able to carry on mandating it. So there's and a this is now September 2022? Yep, yep, yep. So I was asked to write a sworn affidavit for that of, of my story, um, and I probably pissed them off a little bit because my last line was that if our government, our media, and our medical professionals didn't know that these injuries were going on, then that's incompetence to its highest degree. And I said, if they did know it was going on, then it's just pure evil because they've done absolutely nothing about it. So whether that really um, upset them, and, and that's when the order for my doctor came through that he wasn't to speak to me, otherwise they'd bring in lawyers and... Um, they told told him he's had nothing more to do with McCasey, you know, that was it. So, you know, and I just thought, wow, you know, that, that's huge. Um, then after that, what happened? Yeah, there's a through that sworn affidavit, two ex-army officers reached out to me and, and said, look, we've heard of your case. How can we help? And this is the beautiful thing about the Army, you, you know, like the support network, even when you leave, from people that you've never ever met before so one was a doctor one was a padre and um they asked eventually would you like us to write to the chief of army and he knows me personally because he i received his accommodation for winning the Pooley sword in 2019 as, as a brand new drum major and he also tasked me with um coming up with the marching display for the anniversary of the army the 175 anniversary and so you know we've had a bit to do with each other so he, he knows me and so they wrote to the chief of army, and then he wrote to the primary medical officer, so not the chief, the next one down, and and uh, lieutenant colonel in the medical profession, and said, 
sort this shit out and get a report back to me. And so, yeah, that's when the shit hit the fan and, and emails going everywhere. And I don't think I was supposed to be CC'd into a thread of emails where this primary medical officer said, right, you guys get all the paperwork, get it to me, I sign it off, send it away, but don't mention the vaccines. The fact that he said two strokes should be enough to get medical um, compensation. Um, at the end of, just before the Christmas shutdown for the NZDF, I emailed the admin lady who was involved in all this and just asking, you know, I know you're about to shut down for, for Christmas. Is there any updates? And she she replied with quite a, well, I took it as quite been a, a blunt and rude email just saying it's out of our hands. We've done our part. It's with the insurance company now. Now, at the end of, I think, February this year, I still hadn't heard anything. And I had the contact of the guy managing my case with, with um, the insurance company. I got hold of them and he said, oh, we still haven't received all the paperwork. So even though this woman had told me they had, and consequently, my doctor, who wasn't supposed to um, talk to me, got hold of me and said, um, I'm just, I'm out of a job because they, they told him, after working there for 10 years, we don't think you're qualified for this job anymore, so you're going to have to reapply for it. We're going to advertise your job. You'll have to re reapply for it, but you're going to get 40% less if you do indeed get the job. So that's the way he was getting treated. So he's tidying up who, all his... Who, who was that being treated like that? I missed it. That was the doctor. That was my, my army doctor. He'd done it for 10 years. Yep. Full time. And full time. He's a he's he's a soldier. He was a soldier, but what quite often what they do is they, they do their return of service because the defense might put them through um their medical training. They do your return of service and then quite a few will then get out, but then be re-employed as a civilian. Which they did, but even though they're now saying he wasn't they, they re-employed him as, as a civilian. And then they said, just explain that he's done 10 years for the army. Yep. And they said to him, what? That they didn't feel he's qualified for the job and that they were going to advertise his position. He could reapply if he wanted to, but he'd get 40% less because they didn't feel like he was qualified enough. Let that sink in. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite stunning, yeah. Yeah. And it's Anzac Day. And it's Anzac Day tomorrow, yes. This is how our soldiers are getting treated. But, yeah, so he, he contacted me and said, I found a piece of paper that wasn't submitted that was vital for, for um, my um, insurance payout coming through. Right now, he had been told that he had, was to have nothing more to do with his, my case, but the insurance guy said that his name is still on. So it's almost like they were trying to blame him for not doing his part and getting all the, the paperwork submitted. And so, yeah, <laughs> it's just just not, not another one of the ways we're getting treated. It's just... They're, they're just trying to put it to sleep and, and hoping I'll just forget about it, I, I suppose. But yeah, I was very lucky to, to have that doctor on board. Yeah. What, what's he doing now? Well, he's he told me May he gets out. He never had anything lined up, but um, 
I'd say it'd be easy enough for a doctor to get a job, but I'd say he's also been flagged. So it might not be so easy um, for him to get a job. I'm not sure. Do you know of other army personnel that are injured? Um, not by names, but I know there's been a significant amount. Yeah. And I've heard um, from a very reliable source that there's massive covers cover-ups going on with, with young soldiers having heart attacks and, and deaths and, and so forth. But I can't confirm that. That's just what, a, what I'd say is a very reliable source has, has told me. Um, I don't know where Galatea is. Where is Galatea? Have you heard of Mutupara? Yeah. So we share the same same valley as Mutupara. So Mutupara is like the, the logging village of the valley and, and Galatea is the, the dairy farming side of the, the village. The, the valley. So, and, and it's a beautiful place to be. I mean, we're at the foot of the Tarawera National Park on one side, and we've got the Kongaroo Forest on the other. So, we're surrounded by, by trees and mountains. And So, coming up May the 12th, it'll be two years since you had that jab. Yep. And from what you say, you've not had a healthy day since? No. No, like, I think. What's your best day like now? Sometimes I don't feel pain, but then I know it's coming. You know, every night when you're lying in bed, it's just just going off. Um, But I'll I'll be honest, like January and February of this year were probably the two of the worst months pain-wise. But then I felt that I had COVID again at the end of – because March 2022, I did get Omicron, and that was the week after I'd seen that neurologist, and it sort of confirmed what he said about the symptoms of long COVID, because for anyone who's had COVID, this then this is how we live. Actually, getting COVID was probably eight times worse than, than what I feel like on a day-to-day basis, but we're, yeah, our life is COVID, really, living with, with those symptoms. But um, January and February, two of the worst months of, of since it all began, I felt that I got COVID again, but tested um, negative, which is ironic that when I did get COVID, I was only out for three days where whatever I got at the end of February was far worse and lasted two weeks. But when I come out of that, I was relatively free of pain for, for a couple of weeks. The, the breathing was still very restricted and, and I get very puffy. Then leading up to Easter weekend, the pains started coming back. And then on Tuesday morning after Easter Monday, it's about two o'clock, I went outside to go to the toilet, as you do in the country when the beautiful stars out, you know, and, and so forth. And um, I had my pee. I walked onto the concrete pad and then I stopped and I just stretched back and my whole body went rigid, just locked up. And I just tipped, tipped over backwards, um, pivoting on my right heel, like my heel was quite sore afterwards because it just rolled straight back over on my my heel. But my body was just locked like in rigor mortis and it went into slow motion, but it's like I was observing. It felt like I was in my body because I could feel it falling, but I was also watching this this thing happening. Um, My right butt cheek was the first to to hit the concrete and I could see that spread of muscle as my butt hit the concrete. I could hear the slap. Then it was my left um, hip. I had a graze on my elbow 
that was the next impact. Hit my my left ribs, and I was I was even so aware that oh dear, that the head's coming next. And then yeah, the back of my head slapped against the concrete, and then I was still in that rigid um, position when I hit the ground. And then it sort of sort of dissipated, and I was like, "What the hell was that about?" But it's not not something you freak out about anymore because so many weird and wonderful things happen to the body, and it's not like I'm going to rush to the doctors because they're just going to go, "No idea," you know. And the doctors in Mutapada are brilliant, but as soon as you go to one of the hospitals, they just don't want to know you. You know, I was in, I was sent into Rotorua Hospital at the end of. I think it was December, the end of last year. And the doctor came out and it was on, you know, ECG readout and, and the doctors here and other stuff that were going on. He came and sat on my bed in ED. He crossed his legs and folded his arms and said, so you come from Mutipara, do you? And his whole body yeah. language and everything was, oh, my God. I said, yeah, I do. And he goes, I suppose it's Dr. Bernard Conlon, was it? And I says, no, it wasn't. It was a different doctor. He goes, oh. So I said, so what's going on? So I said, do you want to know specifically today or since all this began? He goes, what do you mean since it all began? I said, 12th of May 2021 when it all began. He said, okay, tell me about that. So I said, well, I got the jab. Uh, I said, they think three weeks later I had my first stroke, then severe pneumonia, then I had the second stroke. And yeah, he said, I don't need to know all that stuff. And um, so it just totally fobbed me off. And um, he said the ECG that I sent in with was perfectly normal. He said, there's nothing wrong with you. You can go home. And as I was leaving, he was talking to a female doctor, and he says, oh, my God, they're sending in another one from Mutapada. And he turned and looked at me, and he pointed at my face, and he said, this one's from Mutapada. Maybe he can take her home. So they hadn't even seen this, this person. And they'd already written her off and said, oh, well, this, this one is from Mutapada, so maybe he can take her home. And so that's how we get treated, when, when, you know. And I'm not just saying mutapada, I'm saying jabbed into purse. That's how we get treated when, when we go to hospitals. Or And, and like, I say to my wife now, you know, there'll be other times and they say, doctor will say, oh, I think we should send you to the hospital. And my wife will say, just don't do it. You know, you know what, how they treat you in, in hospital. Um, how old are you, Patrick? 54. And you have a toddler? Yep, three-year-old. Your wife must be very, very worried and concerned for you. Yeah, she, she's been my rock. Um, she, she she doesn't show worriness and whatnot because somebody's got to hold, you know, hold up the vibe in the house. If you if you both kind of say, "Oh, this is," and and I don't, you know, I do what I can to remain positive because there's so much to be positive about. And if you just go down that, that downward spiral, then then there's just no hope for you, for you, you know. Um, for that stuff of, of walking through the deserts and what, what um, I believe this is my hikor, you know, um, this this has happened to me for a reason. Um, Good for you. And are you managing financially? Well, well we've just gone through $40,000 of, of savings because my last pay was the end of May last year. Um, the the uh, insurance from the Army still hasn't come through. And ACC said that they said because I'm not getting any income, um, that I'm I'm flagged as high priority, but it still take up to nine months. And my doctor in here says 
they probably will deny it because there's so much stuff going on, but they can't say it's pericarditis or myocarditis. You know, they can't give it a label. And if you think that Pfizer's released, I mean, I've got the email of 700 pages of adverse reactions, not 700 adverse reactions, but 700 pages of. Somebody said it's now 1,200 pages because they have to keep updating it. But if there's that many adverse reactions, you know, it must be a hell of a job for ACC trying to work out what's real and what's not. You know, it, it's all so new. Well, they don't want to. But they don't want to either. And because I have heard that if they deny your, your application, they threaten to take it to court and then they just, they'll just they just um, accept it because they don't want it in the public arena. Your father, still alive, you said? Yep, yep. He served in the army? Yep. In the band? Yep. So, so he... He just missed out on going into the Second World War. Just his, he had done his basic training and whatnot, and it was all set to go when the war ended. And, and then his post-war service was was in the artillery with, with the artillery band. Well, he must be a good age, Patrick. Ninety-three. Good on him. Yeah. Good on him. And so he did a career in the army. Yeah, well, he's just. Obviously conscripted in and and stayed as the territorial in the army, uh, the artillery band for twenty odd years, I suppose. Tell me about prior to this, before this kerfuffle. What was Anzac Day typically for you? Um, getting up at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I mean, I was really lucky in two thousand and eight to be selected to to go to Gallipoli. So I've played in the trenches in, in Gallipoli and. And um, got to experience that. In 2018, 2017, it was the 100th of the Battle of, of Passchendaele in Belgium, and my grandfather fought there as machine gunners, and I got um, selected to go and play those commemorations in Passchendaele. So that was just absolutely incredible, so moving, moving that place. Um, but as part of the band, yep, we'd normally up about two o'clock and we'd get into Christchurch, set up, we'd lead a parade into this in, into um, Kramer Square or, or wherever they're having it these days, do an Anzac service. Then we go down to the town hall because we always do a, a concert um, on Anzac Day as well. So it's a massive, massive day for us. Um, one year I got to march in the we were in Sydney at the time. Um, we got to march in the Sydney Anzac Parade, and I'll tell you, there are hundreds of thousands of people come out for those parades in Australia. It was just amazing. Um, so, and, and even before Army, being in a brass band, Anzac Day was always at a service somewhere playing, playing with the band. Your grandfather, who served in Passchendaele, was he your father's father? Yep, yep. So that's three generations in the Army serving. Yep, three generations, yep. And did he come through World War One okay? Yeah, well, he survived it. Um, in Passchendaele, he was hospitalised with um, shrapnel um, shell shock, and he got gassed there as well. Um, but he, you know, he'd gone over, went into the Somme, and then off to, to Passchendaele. And they, they, those two battles were far worse than Gallipoli, even. You know, yes. if, if there's such a, th- a thing, you know, I mean, they. Shouldn't be compared, but um, and, and he came back 
I guess, pretty screwed up, as most of them did, just didn't speak about it. Yeah, did you ever meet him? Pardon? Did you ever meet him? No, no, he, he passed away in, I think, the 50s. I was born in 68. Yeah. So when you would be playing in Passchendaele, what would be, as a serving army member whose grandfather served and suffered there a hundred years earlier, what was going through your mind? Oh, so much because, you know, like the places we played at were cemeteries. So, you know, you, you're sitting on a stage and you're looking at over thousands and thousands of white crosses. And I've done quite a bit of research, like before going to Gallipoli, on Gallipoli and before going to Passchendaele. And when I was, did my senior NCO course through the Army, the um, senior non-commissioned officers course, um, I had to do a presentation, and my presentation was on Passchendaele. Um, so, you know, like Arden talked about New Zealand's darkest day being with a mosque shooting, but the darkest day has always been um, the 11th of October 2017 when I think there's t- over 2,000 casualties in a couple of hours, and those soldiers were running out into mud, waist deep, and they're saying that a lot of them were still standing when they were shot because they, they just couldn't fall over. Um, and if you, you know, there, there's a story, like when, when you go up to places like Chanak Bear and you see the trenches, the Turks and, and the Anzac trenches were, were only metres apart, and they had a um, a day where they were clearing the bodies, and there's a picture of a soldier that stood on a body the bodies were so bloated that they burst and his chest deep in bodies, in human bodies, because his bodies just burst under the pressure. So if if you imagine the stench that they had to live, the, the you know, putting bodies at the top of, of their parapets and the trenches, you know, just to make the trenches higher, doing what you had to do. Um, yeah, so so much goes through your mind, so much respect for, the, for these people and, and you know, you think of the stuff that's going on today and you think of, of what these soldiers went through and, and their wives and mothers and fathers at home and, and we're dealing with, you know, um, mandated poison on the people that, that's like killing us. And a lot of us know that we're dying who have got these jab injuries. You know, the, the amount of times I've gone to bed not knowing if, if I'm going to wake in the morning. And I, I have that thing now, hasn't happened for a while, where you wake up because you just stop breathing and just you're drifting back off to, to sleep and you just, just stop breathing again. So the only thing I could do is get up, walk to the kitchen, have a drink of water, get the system going again, then go back to bed and, and fall asleep again. So we just don't know what, you know, the episode, like I said, on the Tuesday morning after Easter, you know, you just don't know what's coming next. I get these, like, bolting rods go through my heart and, and the, the pain um, contorts the body. It, uh, it just it's just boom, boom, you know. But the pain is easily ten out of ten. There's, there's no way I, I could deal with probably thirty seconds of such an intense pain. And you just don't know when the next one's coming. You just don't know what's going to happen next. Doctors don't know what's going to happen next. And I've, I've said to my doctor, you know, I, I know damn well I'm dying. And he's 
He'll be one of the more researched doctors in, in the country on, on um, jab injuries and whatnot. And he didn't say a word. He just crossed his fingers, looked at the floor, and he had, yeah, he had nothing to say because he knows damn well that they've done all the, the research. You know, but they, they know that that the, the future's not that bright for us. Um, and it's just, yeah. And, and, you know, it's like he, when I talked about walking through the desert eating flies off my face, that, that was to face my fear of death. And the place I ended up was on that walk what was a cave that was full of dead kangaroos. And that cave was elevated in the desert. And in the morning when I woke up, I could look out and I could see water. And it's like I was given the cha- choice, death with kangaroos or, or water. And I thought, well, we're going to die someday and it's going to be for a long time, so I, I choose life. Um, but being so so close to death, I felt so at home. So, you know, the feeling was so recognisable. And the only downside to it at that point was um, knowing what my family would have to go through if this son and brother you know, took himself in the desert to die just because he wanted to experience, you know, the fear of death. Um, so on balance, I thought, nah, just come out, live life, enjoy life, and 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 take it from there. So I don't fear death, um, but sometimes it feels pretty close. It's, you know, you, you just feel like you're you're, you're living life on on a on, on a knife's edge at the moment, a razor's edge. You no, know, you, no. you don't know what's coming. You can't work. Yeah, not can't work. Like I go out onto the farm and and do what I can. Um, um, and and it's you know for for mental health as much as anything you know you're out on the farm fresh air and you know around animals and you know it's the stuff you love to do you know you know take the toddler out there and he enjoys it as well so so you know I I have that you know there's no point in sitting around in the house and feeling sorry for, feeling sorry for yourself all day because you know that's going to finish you off as much as anything. Do you feel, Patrick? that on top of all of the injuries you suffered, that there's been like a political or psychological injury of no acknowledgement. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, like I read the other week um, some lawyer had a paper released through the OIA and it was about MedSafe releasing Pfizer in, into the country and they weren't so sure about it so they um, sought advice from the Medicines Assessment Advisory Committee and one of their paragraphs were, however, we would get a better clinical picture of the efficacy and safety when more other people are vaccinated. And that was February 2021. Within a couple of months, it was mandated. So they were pretty much saying, we are lab rats. We'll find out about the efficacy and safety when more people are, are vaccinated. And, and for our doing to then turn around and say, well, on the basis of that, I'm going to mandate it. And like I said before, knowing that the doctors don't know what the hell they're looking at, um, how do they treat us when, when it all turns to shit? They don't know what they're looking at. The honest ones will say that, and the rest will just say, oh, it's anxiety, because they don't want to face the, the medical council. And on the medical council, you know, the only thing that's given me any relief is ivermectin. 
and I'm on. Yeah, how ironic. Yep, and, and I, I'm on groups, and people are saying, yeah, it's anything. You know, like yesterday, my breathing was really, really constricted, but ivermectin's like gold these days. That I only take it when I really need it. So I, I took a couple of tabs yesterday, and within half an hour, you know, my breathing had relaxed. Other people say it helps with their pain, but for me, it doesn't help with my pain, but definitely helps with, with, with my breathing. So for these evil sides to say, no, you can't have it because we say it doesn't work. Well, I'm sorry, but those of us who, who are living this 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 lie, this you know, this, these injuries, we know damn well it works because we put it in our bodies and, and our bodies react to it in a positive way. Um, it doesn't matter to me and probably doesn't matter to my listeners, but these days it matters politically. Are you married, Patrick? No, no. Okay. I just uh, you know. like, I'm, I'm like my sisters have always said I'm a black man trapped in a white man's body. So I've, I feel very, um, very close to the white world, especially of Tuhui, the Tuhui people in Te Uruwera here. So um, I feel the white uh, the, the, the white world, but but yeah, I don't have a, a drop of Maori blood in me. And this Anzac Day. What will you be doing? Well, initially I'd been asked to play with the Eastern Bay Plenty Brass and Fakatani, um, but I, I just can't. You know, it's um, I just don't have that, like I said before, the lung capacity to to get in there and, and blow. Um, funnily enough, a local asked me about three days ago if I could set up an Anzac service here in, in Galatea, and it's like, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I can't in, in three days because, you know, when they talk about brain fog, it, it's, it is a massive thing and to try and organise something like that in three days and do it justice. Uh, quite happy to do something next year, of course. So I'll be heading in, into Mutapara, um to the Anzac service in, in Mutapara. I had a great privilege when I was a Member of Parliament to have a um, Vietnam veteran come to me for help. And he was suffering. And similarly, but, you know, from the war and his service. And it was a great privilege of me because I have never served, but I've always admired those that do. And I don't mean those that serve and go to war. I mean those that serve and are prepared to go to war. It's like the police. I admire all of them because they put their name forward and they're prepared to serve and to run to trouble rather than run away from it. I feel the same about St. John's Ambulance. Mm -hmm. Because my instinct is always to get away from trouble, but they have to go to it, firemen. And through him, I met a lot of Vietnam veterans who were suffering and who were still being shunned and unacknowledged. And I ended up in a huge round parliament with Helen Clark. And to her great credit, she came around and she did a lot to help them. But at the time, I remember watching our Prime Minister go to Anzac Day 
and be all sorrowful about the men and women who'd lost their lives and sacrificed and their health in World War I and World War II. And I thought how easy that is to honour their sacrifice because we no longer have to look them in the face. Mm-hmm. And I was very conscious that we had these Vietnam veterans alive amongst us. And now I feel that we go off to Anzac Day to acknowledge and to remind ourselves of a huge sacrifice that was made because people did what their country asked of them. And now we're in a situation, Patrick, and I'm speaking for you because I don't think you're the sort of man that would speak in this way for yourself, but I feel it, that you're a person that served and would run towards harm's way, just like your dad was prepared to, and his dad did. And you did what your country asked, like every person that took the jab. And there has proved to be a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And we know, and the government knows, that people have died. And they say, oh, well, sort of they took one for the team, which is appalling to me. Yeah. But even on their terms, where's the monument? You know, where's the acknowledgement amongst the living and the dead of this which been is that, that has happened? Yep. It's like you went off to Gallipoli or your son went off to Gallipoli and died or got injured and comes home or doesn't come home and the government says, oh, no, Gallipoli didn't happen. Yes, so similar. No, no, it's all in your head. Mm-hmm. And the media is not going to tell us either. No. And here's the thing, Patrick. I, There won't be a person listening to you today that doesn't believe you. Mm-hmm. Not because you're persuasive or it, it's because it is so honest, and you can't go from being extremely healthy, take a jab, and the next day be ill in an unfathomable, seemingly unknowable and curable way, and say nothing to see here. Mm-hmm. Not only is there nothing to see here, but anyone who looks lost their job, lost their certificate. This is this is a shocking state of affairs, Patrick, isn't it? Oh, it's, you know, when I was travelling around the world, I used to say, you know, people would say, what's the best thing about New Zealand? And I said, well, when the shit hits the fan, we're so separated from the rest of the world, we should be right. And 
now look at us. You know, I just can't. I yeah, I just can't believe the corruption that's come from the government, the the mainstream media, or, or the medical profession. You know, um, you know that that talking to, to my doctor last week, everyone is in such fear of this medical council. Well, I think we the people need to hold them to account. Need to sack the whole lot of them. And if there's criminal charges to be laid, then they should be laid. And I've said that about Adun as well. Um, you know, we we will hear about this agenda 2030, and, and we just follow the file. We don't know what that's about. That's just something that we've been signed up to. Around. But when you look into the the cuts of it, what's going on, mm. and what's happening with this whole jab stuff, it, it, it's quite understandable why, you know. Um, what you know, I, let's imagine there's a, parliamentary inquiry and the people of New Zealand can come to their parliament and tell parliament what they think, which is normally how things like this would work. We've heard your story, so you would obviously tell parliament your story but what would be your message to our parliament and to our government and to our prime minister and the media? Who are you actually working for? So I don't think now you go onto the WF website and Adun's profile is all over the place as the globalist young leader. Well, you're supposed to be working for us. No, they're not working for us. It's the people, it's the people, it's the people, and they're ignoring us. And they are. We, we get treated like lepers, those who have been vaccinated, and, and for, for doing what was supposed to be the right thing in their eyes. You know, and, and you said before, you know, people talk about collateral damage, and somebody said that to me. So, oh, well, you've got to expect some to. Well, no, that wasn't on any consent form. I, I, you know, there's nothing about strokes or heart attacks or myocarditis or pericarditis or death on, on the consent form I, I signed, that's for sure. So that was a lie in itself. It was very clear it was safe and effective. Mm-hmm. And that message is still getting pushed, and those people are pushing it. Well, mandating people. Yep. There's no excuse not to know anymore. No excuse. When I um, when I watched that protest and then had the day at the protest, I didn't understand our parliament because. Even mad people and people who are wrong have an opportunity to have an opinion and to voice it. Mm-hmm. And I've never known or imagined that we'd be in a place in New Zealand where a person such as yourself won't be listened to. And Patrick. It's wonderful to have you on Reality Check Radio because the one thing we can do is to provide the people who have been denied a voice is to give them an opportunity to just explain what happened. Mm-hmm without judgment, without attacking you, 
not a doctor, but we can put two and two together. And I wish you, Patrick, all the very, very best. I, I hope you stay in touch. Um, and you'll be in our prayers. And God bless you and your wife because um, you have an amazing life and an amazing story. And maybe all of this is for some great purpose too. And we've got to hold on to that hope, don't we? We've got to hold on to that hope and your little toddler. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't even know what to say because sort of words fail you, don't they? Because it's just so the enormity of it. I'm speechless, Patrick. I've never – I was an MP for 15 years. I don't want to make this about myself, but I had a lot of people come with problems, you know, that you can't believe that government can do and things that can go wrong, particularly the soldiers, ex-soldiers. And people in power can be so cruel and so uncaring because, you know, they have the ability to fix it or even something else. Vietnam veterans just needed to be acknowledged. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't that be a first step, just to acknowledge? And that's what most of us want, just that. Just acknowledged. Just Mm -hmm. um, to have a say. And what's going to happen in 40 years' time that the Prime Minister of the day will come out and apologise, just like Adrian goes out and apologise for the dawn raids back in the 70s or whatnot. She's not willing to take responsibility of what's going on now, but no. she'll leave it to somebody in the future to, to apologise for. They are they are beyond contempt to me, all of them. Um, we're going to have to leave it here. It's, uh, it's fitting, isn't it, Anzac? We remember the sacrifice and the suffering and the loss, and here we have a very good man um, who served, which adds to his goodness, because he served to protect us and to use his skill and training and ability to keep us safe. And he did that on our behalf for the New Zealand government. And he had to get jabbed or lose his job. He had to get jabbed to do what he was loved and was passionate about. He got the jab, and we don't know why. We don't know what this is. Is it a batch? Is it genetic? Is it is it tree? What is going on? We don't know. But the very next day, he took ill in so many ways it took us over an hour to get through them. My goodness. And the suffering that that man has gone through. And to add to it all, he and his family, unacknowledged, go to the hospital and the professionals there point their finger at you. Like we would expect in olden times, you know, a witch or leper or something, not a Christian thing, not a open arms, not let me hear from you, let me understand you. No, point the finger. 
And the politicians, our government, won't acknowledge the injured and the families who have lost loved ones. And so here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Finally, we have Reality Check Radio. You're with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Finally, we can start to hear from people and hear their story and empathise with them and feel for them and support them. And yes, maybe the most important thing of all, just acknowledge them without judgment. Just listen. Just listen. And you'd have to have a hard heart, would you not, to listen to Patrick's story and not feel for him and his family and to feel, even if you're Jacinda Ardern, even if you're Chris Hipkins, that fellow Luxon, Chris Luxon, forgotten his first name, and David Seymour, or the Green Party, just listen. And if you listened, surely in a wee corner of your heart, in a part of your brain, you would sense that there's something not right here, that there's something wrong, and start to look. Just look. Just ask. Just let New Zealanders speak. Give them a voice. Let them come to Parliament and talk to them. Please. For humanity's sake, you with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.